Welcome back, everyone. Hope you've made some new friends. My challenge to you is this. Let's make the Graceworks a place where uh, nobody ever sits at church alone. How about that? If you ever see anyone sitting alone, invite them to sit with you or go sit by them. I think that'd be fun if our church was a place where nobody sat alone. All right, so we're going to jump into the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. Let's talk a little bit about the book. We, we like to intro books a little bit. Yes. So, okay, first, I mean, we've done gospels before. It's been a while, though. I mean, have we really only done one? We've gospel? done Luke and we've done John. Yes. And typically what's going to happen with most preachers is Matthew's going to be next. But we picked a, a slightly different one. Let's talk about it because the book of Mark is very interesting. It is. It's unique. Um, now, some people check out at this point of the sermon series when it's like, all right, you're going to give me some history about the book, aren't you? You're going to tell me who wrote the book. You're going to tell me who it was to. No one really needs to know. What the dates were. And I'm not a Bible scholar and I'm not going to remember and I really don't care. But let me just challenge you a little bit and say we should care. There is a fancy word called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics means the way that we uh, interpret the Bible. What is our methodology? What is our theory? Do we take things literally or not? And your hermeneutic of the Bible is an incredibly important thing. You need to know how to interpret things and why you interpret things a certain way. Uh, and without a proper hermeneutic, we can get into false teaching, we can, well, which is what you just talked about. We can get into some error, etc. So if we want to really accurately interpret the scripture, we need to understand a few things, a few details about the book. So Mark is uh, a gospel. It is. Right? And it, that word literally means good news. Um, it, but it came to be this genre of literature focused on giving an account of Jesus' life, um, his death and his resurrection. So the book of Mark, um, the, when it was written was mid to late 50s A.D. Some, some, we believe. We believe. Some <laughs> scholars say in the 60s. But what that means is that it really was the first gospel written. And another thing is that it's, it's really one of the most historical uh, of the Gospels, uh, of the four Gospels. What, and what that really means is that it contains m the most historical information of the, of the Gospels. Yeah, Matthew and Mark actually have a whole lot of shared material. So for um, a long time, scholars believed that that shared material, that, that Mark kind of stole his material from Matthew because Matthew was so much longer. And he's like, I'm just going to do the abridged version, the little Reader's Digest abridged version. You guys remember those? Anyone? That's the old people. I yeah. feel like Matthew and Mark are like us. Yeah? Like you're Matthew. You're like the long-winded, verbose. verbose. And I'm Mark, just very straight to the point, very Let's get to the details. concise details. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's good. I just, I just thought about that. So, but with the same shared material, one would be like, well, I wonder if, uh, if really Kevin, who's so verbose, he wrote all the material. And Drew just kind of quips in every once in a while. He's kind of his, you know, his kind of joker on the side, his sidekick. But in reality, the brains of the operation is probably sitting to my right here, who really understands how this church runs. And I just talk a lot and try to impress people. That's it's, it's kind of Matthew and Mark. Like I said, we believe now, and most scholars believe now, that Mark is actually the first one who wrote a gospel at all. 
that Matthew borrowed a lot of the same material and just built upon it because they had different intentions. So we do believe that this is loose, though, that Mark was the first gospel written really early on. The author is a man named John Mark. John Mark is uh, very uh, was a very big fixture in the early church. In fact, he went on a missionary journeys with Paul. There was actually a little conflict between him and Paul. Yes, even in the early church, there was conflict in churches. And, but it did end up getting fixed later on. Um, so John Mark was a contemporary of Paul's and also of Peter. Yeah, he was known as the companion or voice of Peter. And so uh, Mark is also an interesting book because it's the shortest. You know, we're kind of talking about that. It's the shortest gospel, and some would even say the least popular of all the Gospels. It might be that the shortness, though, is on purpose because his audience, the recipients that he wanted to read this were Roman Gentiles. And the Romans were not like the Jews in the way that they wrote literature and enjoyed life. They wanted the details. They wanted it fast. They wanted boom, 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 boom. And so it's almost as if the book of Mark or the Gospel of Mark was written perfectly for Americans. Because we also like all the details. We don't want the extempor- all the extemporaneous stuff. We don't need all the backstory. Just tell me that he's a good guy. Tell me that she's a bad guy. And now let's get to the action-y parts. And so this, uh, this book, the book of Mark, gets to the action-y parts. So that brings us to the purpose. Every book written has a purpose or a theme. And Mark focuses a good bit on the suffering of Jesus. And so some scholars would think that Mark was writing to a church that was undergoing uh, a great deal of persecution and that he was, you know, exhorting them to remain faithful through that affliction and through that persecution. While that is true, that's not the primary purpose of the book of Mark. The overall theme of Mark is the call to follow Jesus. That's why uh, the theme for the book of Mark that we've kind of grasped onto is come follow me. To truly become a disciple of Jesus and to reach others to experience the good news as well. That's the purpose and that's the theme that we're going to keep coming back to as we go through uh, this gospel over the next couple of months. To come follow me. So John Mark is the shortest of the gospels, but it's still not short. We'll probably be in this book for, what, nine months? But it's going to be an amazing journey. Uh, His favorite word apparently in the book is immediately. Because that's what happened. Immediately, Jesus went and did this. And immediately, they went and did this. And immediately, they went and did this. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. It'll be different than preaching Luke, different than preaching John. But we're kind of excited about it. We think it's going to be definitely a challenge, like you said, to to ask, okay, I've believed in Jesus, but am I actually a disciple of Jesus? Am I actually following in his footsteps? Has it made a change in my life? Because if it hasn't, what a waste. Mm -hmm. What a waste. So we take a step back and we look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see four very unique uh, books and all kind of written with a different bent. So Matthew is written to Jews telling them that Jesus is the Messiah who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. And Mark, of course, is written to Roman Gentiles, uh, the suffering king, yes, um, who calls you to follow him, calls you into discipleship. And then you have Luke, and that's written to Greeks, um, telling them that Jesus is the perfect son of man who came to save and who came to minister to all people through the power of the Holy Spirit. And John, of course, is written to the whole world. 
Um, it's the only book of the Bible that explicitly states, and it's in the very last chapter of John, that it was written in order that you would know how to be saved. The book of John tolls, tells us how to be saved um, and in whom we must believe to have eternal life. So those are the four Gospels. We're tackling Mark, and it's going to be a journey. So as we, as we you know, talk through those, keep in mind, as we go through Mark, we're not going to see everything that we normally see in a typical gospel book. There's no, you know, long genealogy. There's no miraculous uh, birth narrative, you know, with, the, with Bethlehem and the shepherds and, and all that. There's no childhood I- at Nazareth or visit to the temple. Um, there's no Sermon on the Mount, and there's very few parables in the book of Mark. But I don't want us to lose interest right off the bat before we even get into the book of Mark because I think Mark brings a very important challenge to us. And we've said it already, but the challenge is to come follow me and me not being Andrew, me being Jesus. And so as we go through this book, we're going to be challenged with that over and over again. Are we being true disciples of Jesus? All right, so let's start at the beginning. Um, Although sometimes the beginning isn't the beginning, is it? Think, of it, think about your marriage. Uh, your wedding day was in a really important day. November 27, 1998 was a pretty important day for me, about to celebrate our 21st anniversary. But our, our marriage didn't just begin on November 27, 1998. It actually began months earlier when I proposed to her, or was it even months before that when I first kissed her or was it months before that when I first realized this is a pretty special person who I want to know better or was it months before that when we met for the first time or could you even say that the beginning of our marriage came years and decades even earlier when our parents birthed us and gave us our origin family and the traits that we have in our DNA and the traits that we developed in our characters because of the family of origin we had. Even though the beginning was on November 27, 1998, there was a whole lot of beginnings before that. It's kind of what we have in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, uh, he starts at the beginning, but not just the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He actually goes all the way back to prophecies in the Old Testament. So let's read Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Yeah, so if you, if you don't have a Bible, we do have a, a table in the back that has some Bibles. You can grab one and follow along with us. You can follow along on the screen. Uh, but Mark begins with a beginning. And the very first line of verse 1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So each account of Jesus' life known as a gospel, begins with a beginning that isn't the actual birth of Jesus. So Matthew begins with Jesus' genealogy, you know, tracing it all the way back to Abraham. Luke begins with the events and the prophecies leading up to the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. And there's John, which actually literally goes to the beginning of creation. The very beginning, In yeah, the beginning absolutely. was the Word, and the Word was with God. So Mark also starts with a beginning, but not essentially the birth of Jesus. So let's, let's read these couple of verses and we'll get into our text today. So Mark 1, 1. You guys ready for this? Starting a new book. It feels good. I love it. I'm just glad he lets us know it's the beginning. Yes. I, I wouldn't have known otherwise. The beginning, not the middle or the end, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Mark wants us to know that this is the story, the good news of Jesus Christ, who was the Son of God. Very, very important for us to understand. Jesus Christ is actually a historical figure. Um, I don't... I don't know that I've ever heard of a single historian who says Jesus Christ never existed. He existed. He was in history, um, but he wasn't just a man. He was the son of God. And so Mark starts this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, by quoting Isaiah, this prophecy that was written several hundreds of years before and seems uh, to appropriate this writing to the coming of a man named John, otherwise known as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, who we're going to talk about in just a second. Uh, the quotation that he uses here is it's ambiguous enough uh, in the Old Testament to refer also to Jesus, who will ultimately deliver the message and prepare the way of salvation. So this quotation is quite interesting. It It's found really in several different places places yeah, it's in, not in just isaiah right is it? so it, it is isaiah in, in chapter 40 verse 3 um but it's also from malachi 3 1 um with a hint of exodus 23 20 in there as well that's kind of a common tool of, of new testament biblical right so it's a, it's a mix of all these prophecies um they're quoted loosely uh, and applied slightly differently than the original context as we we found them in the old testament but it's really what prophecy is, right? Prophecy can have several different applications. Um, and, and you can describe prophecy as uh, if you're looking at a series of, of mountain ranges from a distance, they all, from, from where you're viewing them, they all look the same distance away, but in reality, they may be farther apart. Yeah, some of them may be taller than the others, but again, depending on your perspective, where you're looking from in the distance, a mountain can appear to be exactly identical to the one next to it. Uh, the same is true with prophecy in that looking ahead, the application of, of this biblical prophecy might be, it might be that there's an immediate context and a future context. That the mountains, even though they appear to be the same, are actually quite different. Um, so prophecies that are about Jesus quite often had a fulfillment in the time that they were prophesied. That's what's called in Bible study uh, double fulfillment, which is something that uh, a term that you should probably file away. Double fulfillment of prophecy. There's even triple fulfillment of prophecy. Imagine that the God of the universe is outside of time. He is. And so when he wrote human history and he, when, he, when he put a prophecy into a prophet's mouth, he, being God and so far above us and his mind so far above our minds, could have it be something that applies to the here and now for that prophet in his time, but also hundreds or even thousands of years in the future to Jesus, to his first coming, and a lot of times even to his second coming. So it could be a triple fulfillment, and there's all sorts of cool things like that in biblical prophecy. So you may be wondering, okay, who cares about prophecy? Really not that big of a deal. It is a big deal because this is how Mark begins this gospel. He begins it with a prophecy, a double prophecy, if you will, double fulfillment of, of about Jesus. So why, why is biblical prophecy 
important to us today? Well, there are over 300 prophecies, and again, different scholars are going to have almost different numbers, at least 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled as Messiah, that Jesus did fulfill, period. So you and I can have assurance and confidence in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as our Savior. When we think of 300 different prophecies that he fulfilled and not a single one that was prophesied about Messiah that he didn't fulfill. There's also about 27% of the Bible that's dedicated to prophecy. That is prophecy. 27%. That's a significant amount. And, and so if God has that much emphasis on prophecy, then what his heart is probably should be our heart as well, right? So prophecy is a big deal for us as believers. I got to uh, do a little study in eschatology recently, and uh, I heard a scholar say for every prophecy in Scripture concerning Christ's first coming, there are eight concerning his second coming. <laughs> for every one prophecy about his first coming, there are eight in Scripture about his second coming. So um, the other reason we should care about prophecy is that it gives us a hope for the future. When we're in despair, when our hearts just ache and hurt and, and we don't see an end in sight, we don't see a light at the end of the tunnel, and we're just wondering when the suffering will ever end, we can have hope in what God's promises for eternity are. So prophecy matters for my hope for the future, too. Right. So we start off with this quote, this, yep. this prophecy from the Old Testament, and the, signifi the significance of this comes in the next couple of verses. Let's we see already, what it says. We already kind of gave him the spoiler, but yeah. it's John. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So John, this is the guy who was the voice calling in the wilderness. John appeared, baptizing and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. This is interesting um, because we have to remember something important. The sacrificial system was still in place because there, there was a temple. But this was a cleansing, like a plea to God's mercy for forgiveness of sins. And this does not appear to be weird at all to these people, right? This is popular. Mark Ev says every everyone's going. Everybody in the area was going and doing this. So baptism you know, if we haven't realized yet, was something that happened, at least in a form, before the birth of Christianity and the church. Yeah, otherwise everybody would be like, what, what is this guy doing in the river? Why is he dunking and drowning people? I don't understand what's happening. Nobody seems to say that. Um, they kind of understood what he was doing. What it really pictures is this thing called a mitveh. It was uh, when a Jew would go to the temple to worship God, they did realize that their sin made them unclean. And so they would go through a self-cleansing where they would dip themselves under the water and they would come back out and they would be, in a spiritual sense, cleaned up so that they could go into the presence of God. Here we have, though, instead of just a self-baptizing, I think what's interesting is we've got John doing the immersing of these people, this baptism of repentance. What's the significance of that? It's pretty significant in the sense that traditionally they would do it themselves. But now you have this person, this prophet, if you will, who is 
giving this picture of what Jesus was going to do for those who believe in him, the purifying that would take place through the uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So it, it was impossible for us to purify ourselves. And so someone else has to do it for us. And so what John was doing was this beautiful picture of what God was going to set up for um, Jesus and the Holy Spirit to do to us. It was significant, too, that he calls it a baptism of repentance. Uh, To repent or to, to change your mind about your sin and about yourself and about God. Um... The truth is we are, as humans, depraved and sinful, period. We're not overall good, as our culture might try to tell us. Oh, we're, all, we're mostly good people. No, we're not. We're evil. I, I think my excuse is usually it, my sin's not that bad. <laughs> I mean, let's compare it to, you know, Jack the Ripper. My sin's not that bad. And the reality is, yes, it's that bad. It's horrifying it's egregious it's disgusting my sin is that bad and i'm not overall good and god is holy and just and he demands it and so when i confess my sins confess means to agree with god when i agree with my god yes that's sin and yes it's that bad and yes i need help And we repent and change our minds about our sin, about ourselves, and about who God is. We come to him as the source for salvation because we can't do it ourselves. This is what happens in salvation. This is how we begin a relationship with God. And so John, the forerunner, the frontrunner, he's just paving the way so that the gospel that comes through Jesus Christ will be well received by the people. Verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair. And wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Mark gives us a really quick description of this very interesting prophet, John the Baptizer. If you will, he's an interesting fellow. Um, he's eccentric. Right. Yeah. So rather than getting hung up on his weird clothes and his choice of, of diet here. Well, let's just say <laughs> if you saw John on the street, you'd probably think he was a weird homeless crazy person and he'd probably cross to the other side. I mean, is, is that fair to say? Probably, probably fair to say. He was not normal. So I, th- I think what Mark's trying to say is instead of, you know, looking at his clothes and his, his diet, What's clear from the passage is that uh, John understood his role and who he was. He was the one preparing the way for Jesus. So John isn't the big deal in the story so far. He, he was incredibly popular oh, with yeah. his, his friends, going with to see his him. fellow Israelites, but he wasn't the big deal. The big deal was the one coming after him. So if John were alive today... Um, he, he would probably have one of those, I always say hecky stickers, but they're he greater than greater I. Greater than stickers. I. Stickers. Yeah, he'd probably have that on his, because that was Absolutely. his message. There's someone coming that is greater than me. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. And, and he admits this baptism that I'm doing is symbolic and spiritual and wonderful. 
Jesus is going to actually baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You will be forever changed, not just a ritual cleansing, not just a figurative one. This is going to be spiritual and permanent. So that's that's why he realized I'm not the big deal. Jesus Christ is the one that's going to be the big deal. And here we go. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The baptism of Jesus is in some ways a strange thing. I mean, I remember thinking this as a child. This isn't just this isn't crazy theologian, theologian, bright idea stuff. But to go, why would Jesus need to be baptized? He's Jesus, right? He's perfect. He's the son of God. He's also son of man. Why would Jesus need to be cleansed of his sins? Well, Jesus really, truly is the only person ever born who did not need to be baptized for the forgiveness of his sins. Because he had none, which would have led to a really short confession, which is what people were doing during this baptism. No confession at all needed. But consider this about the God-man. Consider this about Jesus Christ, who, who asks you, believer, come, follow me. Come, follow me. He goes before us. He lays an example for us in this beautiful spiritual event that is baptism. As an ex- Example to you and I as a as a marker for the beginning of his ministry and as an event that marks God's relationship with him. Just like it does with us and God's approval of his son that takes place in this huge supernatural event. Jesus Christ went before us. So when he says, come follow me, we know he actually did it first. And there's something else else kind of special about this event. Yeah, you have all three persons of the Trinity involved in this event. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're all involved in the same time, but each of them have different roles. Um, so maybe in community groups we, this week we can kind of discuss maybe the significance of that and, and just the, the well importance of it. You guys can figure it out because the Trinity is easy. Easy doctrine to understand. So you guys figure that out in community group. You get back to your pastors. Yeah, absolutely. Verse 12. The Spirit immediately, immediately. Drove, drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. So again, <laughs> Did we tell immediately. You? We're, we're in the 13th verse. We've already gone all the way through what the, you know, many gospels take chapters and chapters to do. Right. We're to the temptation of so Jesus. He's, he's moving along the story quickly. He's straight to the point. Love him. Well, and it's not a long account of the temptation of Jesus either. This is all you get, friends. Right. So if you want <laughs> a longer account and you're like, oh, I need to brush up on that, go to Matthew chapter 4. You can read about a longer description of the temptation of Jesus there. But this is a very short account of Jesus' temptation. Um, the, it's really the pre-beginning of Jesus' ministry was being baptized by John. That was significant. And then he goes into the wilderness to be tempted or tested. And again, he doesn't share what happens here or even the results of enduring the temptation with, uh, with, with Satan and, and him passing it. All he really knows is, we know from Mark, is he passed. 
And, and I think for Mar- John Mark, the author, it was like a, a duh, as it should be for us. Jesus is God. God is right. It's in his nature to pass temptation. It would be against his very nature to do anything other than be pure and holy and right at all times. doesn't mean that it wasn't difficult, but it does mean that Jesus Christ, uh, it was inevitable that he would pass. And we get another kind of prophetic coolness in here, too, because that 40 days is kind of significant. Yeah, if you remember all the way back to when we went through the book of Exodus, um, Israel, you, you may remember, they, they kind of, they come out of, out of Egypt and they go through this time in the wilderness and they spend this 40 years, not days, but 40 years in the, the wilderness following, you know, their deliverance from Egypt. Um, and they were tested and but tried. They, f- they failed. And they failed. <laughs> and yet here we have this example of Jesus who spends 40 days being tempted in the wilderness and he passes. It's this beautiful picture, this yeah. beautiful example of, of Jesus and, and how significant he is and, and why we can look to him uh, for our source of everything. And again, geek out on the prophecy of it. Enjoy this, that the intricacies of God's deliberate plan of human history is seen in how Israel failed and the law, because humans couldn't keep the law. They had 40 years of chances. They failed and failed and failed. Jesus Christ can fulfill the law, and he can be the one to help us because we can't fix ourselves. Right. This is such a beautiful picture of Jesus going before us so that we can truly obey when he says, come and follow me. Because if you remember Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4 says, uh, verses 15 and 16, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus went before us. He experienced the suffering. He experienced the temptation. So for us as believers, we don't have some God who is just out there, who has we feel like disconnected from or who hasn't, oh, we, he hasn't really been in my situation. He doesn't really know what I'm going through. No, Jesus did that. He went before us. He was tempted. He was tried so that he could sympathize with us as we walk through this life. When we get into that kind of teenager temper tantrum phase, where we're like, you don't understand me, Heavenly Father. You don't get it. You don't understand. He can say, yeah, I do. I do get it. I've been there. I've walked there. We've already had a ton of action. We've got to stop at some point here. So um, we, we get to the end of this beginning, a beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the beginning of this gospel, the good news um, I think immediately shows us that Jesus Christ is one who walks with us and walked before us. Um, I mean, in the very beginning of human history, we have Satan tempting Eve, and she fails. Um, but Satan tempts Jesus, and Jesus succeeds. When Adam and Eve sinned, death resulted, and an animal had to be killed to cover their nakedness. Uh, eventually, Adam and Eve, they, they had to die, and, and actually death came to all of us as a result. Ultimately, um, to reconcile sinful humans to God, Jesus was going to have to actually die, the perfect sacrifice. 
So all of human history is leading up to this, to this point where Jesus finally and thoroughly defeats Satan, sin, and death. And he, uh, right away in Mark, shows us that he could defeat sin, that sin is, is no match for him. Satan is no match for him. And I think it gives us hope as we start out this study that we can put our faith into Jesus Christ because he's sufficient. Right. So the beginning of the gospel of Mark did, does not begin in Mark 1, 1. It began at the beginning of time. Just like if you've put your faith in Jesus, it didn't begin with a prayer specifically. It began even before you were born. God's been at work in your life, weaving life and weaving other people into your life in order that you might at that moment in time come to know him. Hmm. So if you're wondering where the good news is in your life, you can know that God has been working on it for years and years and years. We really hope that um, looking at this introduction to Mark, you've been struck with the same profoundness for God's plan that we were as we studied this. Uh, there's nothing haphazard about the way that God works. Uh, his timing is appropriate and perfect. He's not caught off guard and scrambling to find a solution to the mess that is sin and that, that we find ourselves in. In love, he has been actively at work bringing about salvation and the plan of salvation ever since humans needed it. And nothing surprised him about our sin and the results of our sin. Um, but this gospel shows the reality of the, the culmination of what his plan was to save us from the predicament of sin. And we should rejoice in that. Yeah, so that's our, that's our hope. That's what we want for you guys, that you have begun in this way as well. That you've realized that you're sinful, that you fall short of God and that you need Jesus, that you've confessed your sin, and you've asked for mercy from God, that you've trusted in Jesus as your personal, eternal Savior. Just as the people did who were going out into the wilderness and yep. changing their minds and confessing their sins. We also hope that you've answered the call to come follow me in the waters of baptism. Uh, that you've made a, a public profession of your faith, that you've identified with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and his resurrection um, as, as thankful obedience, which is wonderful and which is worship, but also as a sacrament picturing, again, your spiritual cleansing, your baptism by the Holy Spirit that wasn't just with water but with Holy Spirit. I hope that you follow Jesus in these ways. And I hope that you, if you haven't, will consider doing that. Um, we, we challenge you. If you don't know what eternity looks like for you, if you know that there's sin present in your life and you don't know what to do about it, that you would come to Jesus Christ with your sin and say, I'm changing my mind. I confess it. It's sin. I need you. And that you would count on his death in your place as a substitution to save you. And then again, that you would walk in obedience through the waters of baptism, which are also something that Jesus himself did and now says, come follow me. And we also challenge you to pass the test of temptation. They're going to come as Jesus passed the test. Be holy because I am holy, God says. Jesus Christ passed 
those temptations, you and I with Holy Spirit can now pass the temptations as well. We're not helpless against sin anymore.